Skippy, biddly, dee, dee, the review dee. podcast. Yeah. Wow. Hi, Bree. Hi. Welcome to the review podcast. My name's Anthony. I'm Bree. And this is a podcast where we review movies. We watch a movie every week, normally in a franchise, in which at least one of us has seen the movie. Uh, one time, at least one time. Normally, we've both seen the movie, but at least one of us has seen it at least one time. Hi, Brie. Hi. Oh, man. How are you today? I'm feeling good. Yeah? Yeah. Made some pizza, some garlic bread. Yeah, Brie made some homemade pizza today. We are vibing. We're just we're just rocking and rolling at, at good old Casa Review. Um, we've got, we've got Kaido messing with his Kong outside of our room right now. Um, so you might hear some, I'm hoping that you don't hear banging. I've been trying to work on the audio. This has been a work in progress, my friends. Uh, the audio has been so wishy-washy with us that I can't quite ever get it the way that I want to get it. And I know why I can't get it the way I want to get it. You want to know why? Why? Because our room echoes. Well, yeah, because we have nothing in it. We have nothing in it. We have no tarps on the walls. We have to keep the door open or else the dog will like be a menace. So we're just going to have to make do with what we have. And you know what? I think our listeners are looking for us this to be just... This is real life. This is real stuff. This is real life. Real life. Real life we're dealing with here. So how's your day been, Bree? Good. I've been reading all day. Yeah? What books? Um, I just finished um this one book. And it was like forgettable. I mean, <laughs> it was about a bodyguard and falling in love with his person he is bodyguarding. Did you mention it on the last episode of the podcast where you were talking about how you just want books to like turn your brain off of? Oh, yeah. And I found one. Oh, my goodness. I will say if you want to turn your brain off, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about your life. Um, Colleen Hoover. She pumps out these books like No Tomorrow, and they're they're so easy. I'm almost finished, and I just started her book today. But, so you told me that she's known for something. I've never heard of this author, but she's known for, well, you you told me earlier. It's the easy read rom-coms. They're, they're easy read rom-coms, but also. Uh, well, not actually rom-coms, because they're all kind of like sad. It People call it, um, what is it, trauma P.O. Porn. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because everybody has like a bad backstory. They go through something traumatic in her books. They're not Mm -hmm. rom-coms. I've been reading a lot of rom-coms. Why were you afraid to say porn? I don't know. Because your mom listens to us. (laughs) Oh, no. uh, I mean, we've said much worse, I I think. We've definitely said much worse on here. Maybe I I just want to be nice for your mom. So, can I tell a story? No. Okay. So... (laughs) You know, I teach at uh, I teach at a Catholic school, and once in a while we <laughs> once in a while uh, uh, anybody from my school that's listening right now that was not my own uh, thoughts and opinions on the school. I love the school. I went to the school. <laughs> that's free, um, and she is allowed to have her own. Opinions, oh yeah, because but... I'm a big I'm a big um, advocate for public schooling. Mm-hmm. I believe everyone should have a public education. Very so important. yeah, and. Once in a while, we have mass at the school. Now, the crazy thing—the crazy thing about—oh <laughs> my god, oh mass, oh my god. Um, the crazy thing about our school is that we've changed our schedule to an extent where we want, like, every assembly, mass, service, whatever it is, 
to be on the same day. It's every Wednesday we do this. And what it's then turned into is mass being a 45-minute thing to an hour and a half thing. So all the kids hate it, and everybody dreads these Wednesdays. I don't blame them. I would hate it. So the couple of weeks back... um, you know, in the Catholic, in, in the catechism, Brie, in the Catholic dogma, you have the ritual, uh, the, the, uh, I'm Catholic. The, you don't have to make it the, seem lit- like it's the a liturgical foreign... season and the liturgical calendar becomes, uh, Lent. Lenten. It's Lent. So to start off Lent and to kick off Lent, you have Ash Wednesday. So we had our Ash Wednesday, what they called a prayer service, but ended up being an hour and 45 minute mass. Um, where they invited a priest to come in that was outside of our, you know, school, somebody that hadn't been in our school before. And the priest was noticing that, like, everybody in the school was falling asleep on him. So he said, he was talking in his homily about you, in Lent, like, you can't give up baby shit for Lent. Like, you can't give up baby stuff. Like, giving up pop, giving up chocolate i'll have you know sweets. my mom gave up beer for lent and i'm proud of her but uh, he said that that's baby st- not the beer thing but the, like sweets like that's dietary he's like that's not giving up something that you really really love like you're supposed to give up something that is harmful to you so he's like you got to give up snapchat he's like you got to give well, up. then my mom actually understood the assignment because beer is yeah. bad for you well yeah yeah you should, I wasn't, have, gave, I wasn't you should have given up gambling for Lent. I I gave up gambling five days into gambling. <laughs> it didn't take 30 of them. <laughs> so um, he's talking about, you know, you should give up things that are harmful. Snapchat. And then he's like, you should give up, uh, you know, getting angry really quick. Try to try to manage your Ooh, emotions. You should do that one. And, yeah, I should. And then he goes, he stops for a second. He looks around. He goes, they're never going to invite me back after I say this one. But y'all need to give up porn. And I swear to God, the kids gave him a standing ovation when he said that. And it was amazing. I looked I looked at the one kid in my group who was like falling asleep and he like perked up after he heard porn. And I was like, this guy knows what we're talking about. <laughs> but I I thought about that and I was like, why are people oh, there's Kaido. Um, why are people so afraid to say that word? Like I guess it's a dirty word. It's a dirty word and it's a funny word. So like we were talking in my uh, in our like reflection with the group afterwards. and I was like, he got a standing ovation for saying porn. I was like, but it's a funny word. I guess it wouldn't have enough. It wouldn't have the same weight to it if he said pornography. Right. Like that's not as funny as porn. So don't be afraid to say porn, Bree. Um, I will still. We're I not going to talk th- actively about porn. Personally, but- I, and I've talked about this before. I am very liberal minded, but like talking about like sex and stuff, I'm very conservative. We're what we just finished season two of Euphoria. And I talk about that all the time when I'm watching that show. I'm like, it, it makes me super uncomfortable because like I don't watch this stuff. I don't like I don't consume this media like on my own. If I wasn't watching it with you, I wouldn't consume that media. I, I looked at that. Well, the, first of all love euphoria if we could start a euphoria podcast where i just dissect like all the cool shots and like all the cool filming techniques and the framing and the cinematography that'd be great it's a beautiful show to watch however there's so much nudity in that show that it's like uncomfortable and like we talked i think we've even mentioned this on the podcast before that we're pretty both 
liberally minded people and like pretty open, you know, and I, I looked at that show the first episode and there's like a genitalia flying everywhere. And I said, the children watch this show. My freshmen are like, did you see Euphoria last night? And I was like, no, I don't watch that show. So when then we, we start, start watching, then we started like, watching the it. The children are watching this show. I can't believe this. The children are watching this. There's like pee pee flying everywhere. And I said, holy moly, this is like uncomfortable. Like even male, female is as much as it is. It's uncomfortable. It's the sheer amount. It's not like, oh, wow. Uh, you know, Anthony's saying that he doesn't like to see male genitalia. That must mean he is like a homophobe. It's like, no just any amount is too much like as at the rate that they show it in that show like any amount there's full frontal stuff in there and i'm just like whoa i can't believe you're comfortable being an actor and doing that because i would not be i'm just putting it out there i don't like nudity yeah you've expressed that i don't like before. nudity i like i don't i like being nude in my own home I but think i think that's, that's the only place you should be nude in a, private in private and i think you should only be nude in front of your partner. You know? Yeah. And I, I I wasn't even I didn't even go nude when we were doing swimming in high school. The only way to change into a bathing suit is to become nude. Girls in the bathroom would set up towels by placing them in between lockers. Like you would slam the towel in a locker on on each side to create kind of like your own like mini changing room. Very private. I went to the stall. I, there was only one. Was in, there was only one stall in the girls' locker room for swimming because it was a different locker room than the main locker room. I don't know how it is at other <clears> high schools. <throat> when I was in high school and we had to like change for gym, nobody nobody was like that open with each other. You know? No, because we're all going through like an awkward phase in our body. Like, yeah, like freshmen well, are going I'm through puberty. Like... Um, seniors, don't look at me. And I was like, man, I almost always changed in a stall. Like, I, like when we go to the gym or like we go to the pool at the, the community center and we're in the, uh, I, I go into the, because uh, to get to the pool, you have to go through the locker room and to get into your bathing suit, obviously, like you need to change. So I still go in the stall. I don't. Uh, and I've, oh, I wear I've my seen bathing suit shit. to the pool and back yeah. from the pool. I've seen some shit in there, Brie. Like, so have I. Yeah, old it's lady. uncomfortable. Oh, lady bits. I don't want to see. <laughs> Make a grandma. Make a grandma. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, like they, they did their time. I'm like, they, they, they earned that right to be nude in the locker room without me just being like, oh, my eyes. Yeah. Yeah, but I understand that. I'm polite. Like, I'm super polite. Like... I think I'm a product of how I was raised. So I was raised in a Catholic home with conservative parents. And no matter how many, how much I try to distance myself from my upbringing with my political views, my views on my body and like social norms are still grounded in the Catholic it's, church. It's a death. I think, hey, listen, I have a theory. I have a theory. And I taught religion for a little while, uh, Catholic, uh, Catholic Christianity and um, I, I feel like as though I'm in tune with the stories and the catechism, um, even though that's not necessarily my beliefs right now. Um, I do feel like it's it goes back to Adam and Eve and like the idea of, 
well, Eve ate the apple and now she's like super self-aware and super uncomfortable with her own body and her own nudity. And I think that kind of carries over into the Catholic upbringing where it's like we're we're supposed to be told that you're you're not supposed to be comfortable with, you know, being flashy like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that is part of the Catholic upbringing. Like it's a subliminal part of the Catholic upbringing. It's not like you tell your kids you should really be uncomfortable with your body and you should really like not like when you or other people get nude. But I think that's a subliminal thing as we learn the stories in church or if we are in Catholic school and we we hear the stories. It's all it's all part of the teachings and it's what they want you to know. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? No, I think you're probably hitting the nail on the head here. Yeah. So let's dive in. Why are we actually here? We are here to discuss 2018's what do they call it? Oh God, I forgot. Why did I just brain fart on the name of what? Not the movie. Uh, requel. A requel. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The re the 2018 requel to uh Halloween. Halloween 2018. What do you think about the title? First of all, before we get into this, unoriginal. You think it's unoriginal? But I, also classic. You know what I mean? But like, also, yeah. I don't know if you can get much better than. Just simply Halloween, because I know that there were a couple of titles that they were. You know what they should have there. done? They should have always done Halloween in a year. Halloween twenty eighteen, and then Halloween twenty twenty one. Like, what do you mean? No, like every time they made a Halloween sequel, they should have just done a, the year. Yeah, like Halloween twenty eighteen, and then like Halloween Kills would have been Halloween twenty twenty one. I know, like with even with the other ones. Oh, so they're all so that you know when they're made. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I would never be confused again. So Halloween 2018, they arrived at the title for this movie in kind of not it's not really inter- it's not interesting, but it's kind of interesting. Um they were kicking around a couple of different titles. The one that they really like wanted and they were tossing around was Halloween Returns. What do you think about that? Do you think they should have Halloween returns every year. Halloween does return every year. It's a yearly thing. Um, but I so when Jason Blum came on to produce the movie, they didn't want Halloween returns to be like the new this movie to be called Halloween Returns because I uh it, it was something where they felt like they wanted they felt like if you call it Halloween Returns, then you're you're almost secluding yourself to the audience of the original Halloween. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just title it Halloween, it's simple and it invites new viewers in as well. So keep it simple. Just call Mm -hmm. it Halloween. But it also has like one of the most confusing like series of film titles. So we go, because this movie is starting off a brand new timeline in the Halloween mythology, the, the, the canon where we're skipping everything besides the first movie so as you should this is a direct sequel to john carpenter's 1978 movie 40 years later we are skipping everything so now the chronology of this movie goes halloween 78 halloween 2018 halloween kills halloween ends and it becomes a what do they 
do they do they have a name for it when it's like a four film anthology or because I know it's like you have a a duology is two movies, a trilogy is three movies, a quadology. I don't know. The is that the name? A qu- it becomes a quadology, but we're not here to talk about Halloween Kills or Halloween Ends. We can get there later. We're going to act like we haven't seen those movies when talking about, or we haven't seen Halloween Kills at least when talking about this, um, because we want our we want our fresh eyes on it. So, overall, general thoughts, Bree, what do you think? I like this movie. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I sometimes I get disappointed with sequels and requels because. Sometimes the magic of the first one is lost. How so? I appreciate just the cl- like the classicness of the original Halloween, mm-hmm. and like so you didn't think Rob Zombies was oh <laughs> Robert Zombers. Robert Zombers. It's nice, I guess, to come off of like so many shitty Halloween movies and then get. A good one. But if you're going to do like a requel, I like the way this was done. This is probably where like- it was like, let's skip. It's kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make a fair comparison because not every Scream movie is good. I would I would argue opposite. I think every Scream movie is good. Okay. But but you know how Scream, it's like we skip years. Sure. Because the Scream movies always are commentaries on or okay. at the time. Is there something special about... You know, picking something up, dropping it, picking it up years later, dropping it again, which I think this trilogy after the original, this like newer trilogy, I ki- it kind of loses that specialness of like picking it up and throwing it down. What with kills? Yeah. With having three mm-hmm. movies and not just doing a one night, one movie thing. Yeah. But you know... I'm that, sure, and that's something we can I'm sure more. someone's going to pick it up in 20 years and attempt uh, it again. Less than that. Come on. There, there's <laughs> no way they end this with Halloween ends. They'll just pick it up five years later. Um, I, and I think this is something we can explore more on the next episode when we get into Halloween Kills, which, you know, we've both seen it. I've seen it twice. You've Have you seen it twice? Because I, I watched so. it, I I watch it watch once it. in theaters and then I watched it on Peacock. I think we watched it together. I'm um, gonna be honest. I think you forget that you watch movies with me. Sometimes I do, um, and I I think that I appreciate Halloween Kills, but I also think that it this Halloween 2018 is a far superior movie than Halloween Kills. I think that while 1978's Halloween is like undoubtedly I think a cinematic masterpiece, I think that it's one of the best movies ever made and i'll fight anybody that says so 2018 is almost on par i i really 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 love 2018's halloween and i was so excited to get to this point where we get to watch this for the podcast i was really eager to do so because i haven't seen this in a, a long couple time of months anthony 2018 yes we, we literally watched this on halloween no we didn't yes we did Bree, no we didn't yes we, we did Brie, I haven't seen 2018 since we literally just no. watched it. No, you're you're misremembering. We watched Halloween 78 on no, Halloween. No, we didn't. 
He's really upset with me right now. It's one of those things. Because it was on Peacock. No, Halloween 2018 was not on Peacock. It was on some streaming service. No, we it wasn't. It. Okay. It I, was not. I am almost certain that Anthony is full of shit. No, I don't think I've seen this movie since 2019. I think I watched, we saw it in theaters together when it first came and out. And we watched it again together. We watched it again together in 2019, a year later, at my old house when I lived with my parents. Yeah, we did. Yes, we did. I I so remember movies, Brie. <laughs> well, you're not seeing it at, um, in your little place wherever you listen to your podcast, but I'm fighting him. We are literally fist fight. We're I'm, in cars. I'm fist fighting. <laughs> I, I'm kicking. I'm screaming. I'm scratching. But- listen, we're both in cars and we're driving down mm-hmm. in Maseratis and Toyota Ultras or whatever the hell they drive in Fast and the Furious. We are racing right now. And one of us, if they're wrong, they just have, we to, just keep have to keep going and never come back. <laughs> okay, let's get into this, actually. Okay, do you have any behind so, the scenes stuff? Yes, I do. Um, so, behind the scenes. Um, they, it's, this movie took so long to get into production because the studio realized how bad they had screwed up with Rob Zombie's franchise because they had, well, first of all, let's be completely honest here and going back and revisiting some of our conversation about the Rob Zombie movies, Rob Zombie, I don't think has ever heard two human beings communicate with one another. Oh, I don't think he's ever heard a conversation before. I don't think he's ever heard a conversation outside of a trailer park before. Well, not even outside, just in general. Like the way we talked about this in the zombie episodes where it was like, I, this guy does not know how people communicate and talk to each other because the way that he writes dialogue is like, suck this and like, fuck that. And it's so vulgar for the sake of being vulgar that it becomes almost laughable in the dialogue and it's just not conversation that two people have. So where this movie in 2018 is a bit more refreshing because the dialogue feels so much more natural. And Except at one scene and we'll talk about it. Okay. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. I had to remember it for a second, but I know what you're talking about. Um, but it took so long for this movie to get made because they didn't know what the hell to do after Rob Zombie's Halloween too, because that was, like we said in that episode, maybe one of the most ambitious studio horror movies to come out at that time where it was like, this is a wild movie. This is not Halloween. This is something entirely different. And 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 we'll talk about the unmade Halloween sequels in a future episode, but they wanted to originally make Halloween 3 in Rob Zombie's universe, but without Rob Zombie. How do you, do you, what do you think that would have been like? Interesting, it, I guess. How do you do that? Because it seemed he like has Rob such a Zombie. Unique perspective on how people communicate how people and interact. And it's like, no one can reproduce. Can you write the same way Rob Zombie No, would I would feel uncomfortable, but that's just. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it would, that would have been an absolute weird show of Halloween. But then they shifted gears and they wanted to do a bunch of other movies, including what the original Halloween Returns was, and we'll talk about that more on a future episode. It didn't go through. They didn't want to do it. And then they started to recalibrate a little bit, the Halloween franchise. And they said, well, what do we do 40 years after the original movie? And they said, 
let's give it a direct sequel. So they hire um, two guys to write the movie. They hire David Gordon Green, who ends up being the director as well, and Danny McBride of like the, the Seth Rogen gang. Like Danny McBride is from movies like pineapple express and uh this is the end and he's like he's a comedic writer eastbound and down he's in and it's weird because and and david gordon green did uh i think he did eastbound and down but he definitely he did a movie called observe and report which is no he that was jody hill i don't know what david gordon green did i'm getting i'm getting my directors confused but i'm pretty sure david gordon green was like a comedy guy so you've gone from hiring Rob Zombie, who is like rockabilly, you know, trailer park, like crazy, grungy, dirty horror movie director to the comedy guys. <laughs> and you know what? It freaking worked because you get a movie that is so like when it's made by Halloween fans, like. Danny McBride and David Gordon Green have made it very clear that they are super fans of the original movie. They're super fans of John Carpenter. And I think that really shows in this movie because I, I think this movie is made delicately and this movie is made with a tremendous amount of respect and love for the legacy of the 78 version to an extent where Carpenter's back. John Carpenter came back for this movie, not he was in more of not in a writer or director role, but he was more of a consultant and he did the music for this movie, which I um, think that I guess with his the, son, Cody Carpenter, the best part of this movie. And I'm getting ahead of us because he's probably oh, sure. you probably have more to say about the making of the movie. But when we open up, we have more of a modern opening. We don't start with the pumpkin. But when we get to that point where oh, there's a break, a, okay, so and yeah. then the pumpkin is coming from a decayed pumpkin back to life, and you have the dun, 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 and you're like, oh, we're home. It's like an updated theme, and uh, we got to talk about that scene in particular because I, I, this movie is like just such a love letter to the original Halloween that. It's like I can't help but and there are several, I can't help but like it. There are several aspects of this movie that you really feel like it is a love letter mm-hmm. to the original because they took such deep care with what they're putting on screen and some at some points mirror the yeah. original. And it's like I think there's like so three special times. about like, that. There's like three times in this movie where Laurie takes the role of Michael in like kind of an homage to the classic scenes that we saw in 78, like she's standing outside of the school when Michael would have been in that position in 78, when she falls off the balcony, he's, she's gone like in 78, when she comes out in the shadows, like Michael did in 78, there's a lot of that in here. And it's so, it's such an interesting flick because in the wrong hands covering and and making those different pieces of legacy homage aspects and like, it could be cheesy in the wrong hands or if done incorrectly, it and could come off in was, poor taste was anything but cheesy. Yeah. Yeah. So Carpenter's back for the music. And I- I'm going to talk about in particular one piece of score that he and his son worked on and put into this movie. That is tre- one of the most tremendous pieces of score for music. I think in, in just film in recent years. And that's, um, 
the scene where Michael is hunting Allison and the score is cut is called the shape hunts Allison. (laughs) And what, after she finds um, Oscar's body on the, on the pole and it's like a, it's like a synthy music. And then it goes like the big, you know what I mean? I love this. I love when he makes weird noises. Okay. So, um, Carpenter's back and it really I think it really shows because Carpenter had this philosophy where he hasn't really been involved since number three or number four and he had shit on the, all of the franchise for years and years and years he almost got into like a, a fist fight with Rob Zombie over this stuff because he said I don't even think Rob Zombie's like a good filmmaker he was like he just completely destroyed he didn't understand the characters like Carpenter hated everything about the zombie movies to a point where Zombie moved so far away from Carpenter's vision that it became something entirely different. And Carpenter, I think, had this notion of, well, I can either talk shit about the movie or I can like put my money where my mouth is and I can help out. And that's what he did. So he worked as a consultant and he worked on the score for the film as well. Um, One of the major things that Carpenter was a consultant on and told them not to do they were gonna retcon the end of the original Halloween movie they were gonna hire bring Jamie Lee Curtis in for one scene and they were gonna do that de-aging technology that like Star Wars did and like uh what was the other movie that did like the de-aging like Avengers they were gonna do that stuff and they were gonna retcon the end of Halloween 78 so, you know, at the end when um, Loomis shoots Michael a bunch of times and he falls off the balcony and that's the end of the movie. They were going to pick up in 2018 with a flashback to 78. And it was when Michael like sits up in that really creepy way and he was going to kill Loomis. And then Laurie was going to take the gun and shoot him and he'll, he'd fall off the balcony. So they were going to retcon the ending. And Carpenter was like, you're going to piss a lot of people off if you do that. And so like they constructed a set for it. Like they were ready to film this mofo and Carpenter was like, don't do it. And I think, I think it ended up being um, not only Carpenter's recommendation, but it ended up being a money issue too. I think it got too far over the budget to do the de-aging stuff. So they just ended up not doing it, but it, it, the movie becomes better for not having done that. Because, like, now you can watch Halloween 78 and 2018 back-to-back, and you don't, like, lose anything. Whereas if I watch 78 and then this one back-to-back, I'd be like, well, what the fuck? They just changed the ending. Like, I'm completely lost now, (laughs) you know? So that's really the only piece of background um, information about the movie that I had. Uh, I I know, you know, if you're a film nerd like I am you can definitely tell that some of the framing and some of the the shots in this movie and how things are filmed are really trying to be Carpenter-esque in the way that it's filmed like using the wide frames and using um the like oneer aspect of it and the point of view shots and I think it's it's not only a love letter to John Carpenter, but also a love letter to his cinematographer for the movie, Dean Cundey, who we tend to uh, reference in every episode of this podcast so far, because um, I'm a Cundey head. I'm a Cundey head. Love me my Cundey. Uh, 
and I, I, I mean, I can't say any more like great things about this movie. And I, I, I feel like, you know, where my answer is going to be at the end of this. Oh yeah. At the end of this podcast. But, um, I, that's all I got for, uh, where we go in background information. So you want to get down to it? Let's get into it. So we're getting into it. We're starting with the opening. Like I said, this is like our first modern opening to the movie, but we're not starting with that like shock and awe factor. Like the beginning of this movie is very, I mean, we're at Haddonfield or we're in a uh, Smith's Grove. Yeah. It's very mon- like nothing crazy happens. And then you get the cut to the, like we said, the pumpkin coming from a decaying. Where is, you're moving really far ahead. You're speeding <laughs> through this shit. And we need to pause and rewind for a little bit. Um, because you're, I, you're skipping over a pretty big scene here. Um, we've returned to the orange font, which is great. Like that thick orange font from the original. Um we're at Smith's Grove Sanitarium in 2018, and these two podcasters are there trying. They're like true crime podcasters, and they're trying to get Michael. To, they're doing a sto- an expose on Michael, and they're trying to get him to respond. And so we're introduced to Michael's new doctor because Loomis has passed away. Dr. Sartain. I think Sartain is his name. I'm pretty sure I didn't skip ahead. No, yeah, you did because... It's all after that. The decaying pumpkin thing happens after this scene. The ti- the opening title happens after this. Be- and you know why I know this is because it has one of the best Slam 2 opening titles that I- I've seen in recent years where um, we're introduced to Sartan and Sartan says, I was a student of Dr. Loomis. Michael has become my obsession recently. Like, I just want to know what makes him tick. And he hasn't spoken. It's been 40 years. He's been seen by so many different psychiatrists. Everybody has different answers. But um, this is essentially what we're dealing with. I wrote these two dummies um, in my notes. And I said, the doctor, he talks about like he doesn't want Michael to get transferred. Yeah. Like he's very against it. I think once we figure out the doctor's actual like motives throughout the movie and like the twist on the doctor going back to this scene like you can definitely tell something is up with him and like the way he talks about michael like well he's, i think it's unethical clearly, that he's letting these people meet with michael he's ve- yeah it's super unethical right like you shouldn't be doing like if you really care like because he he said dr loomis was the only one to see michael out in the wild and he tells the podcasters that so I think Sartan at this point is looking for an excuse to get Michael to react, you know, and he's trying to do everything he can to make Michael react because he wants to see Michael out in the wild. Um, I said, Michael meets these people and the and the guy like can't get Michael to communicate with her- him. He's like harassing Yeah, him. harassing Michael, pulls out the mask and it's kind of like angry like the mask drives no reaction well, from michael yeah so we well i wrote first of all why did michael go back to smith's grove after 78 
when he was being transferred away from there in the first place. Like, that was the whole point, right? Like, Michael was supposed to be transferred into the state's hands, and that's when he escaped in 78. Um, But they said that he's being studied and the state is losing interest in Michael, so he's just going to be transferred to, uh, like, a federal, not a federal, but a state-run facility. Um, And I said, you know what? Um, The outside of this, this, like, recess playground looks so weird and then as we're they're interrogating him more and as he keeps ignoring them everyone around michael starts going wild starts going wild i wrote down does michael uh, well i said does michael have effect on have an effect on other people's emotions i maybe because is he on a different wavelength than the rest of us can only communicate with those who are like on his own wavelength and maybe maybe and I think that this scene is really interesting because he, the podcaster pulls out the mask and he's like, I borrowed it from the attorney general. Like, that's his explanation for getting the mask. So I'm like, that is a crazy explanation that you just gave and we just zoomed past. I know, because, like, <laughs> no way any, like ethical person it, gives that mask away that, and that's what i was thinking i'm like this is the this is on the same level of explanation as when they asked him when they asked in halloween 3 how that guy got stonehenge and they're like well it took a lot of effort and that was <laughs> was a deal with stonehenge so he's uh the podcaster guy's like michael speak say something he's holding up the mask and everyone around michael's going crazy but michael stands the dogs are barking and the the inmates are you know losing losing it, losing it around and it's it's such an overwhelming like it, it's like sensory overwhelming to to see all that and then it the guy goes michael say something he's like, scream say something and it slams into and then you're you're correct cuz yeah. i said really appreciate the callback to the original opening um yeah and then so it slams into the the music and i think that's got to be like one of the best slam to opening title credits that i've seen in a movie recently because it's it's scary like that's a scary scene to have all of those inmates going crazy and it's so, so much sensory overwhelmingness that when you hit that music you're like on edge now we're on edge right so we get that opening title of the punk, the decaying pumpkin coming back to life, and which is so obviously an allegory, or not an allegory, but a, a metaphor for this movie and bringing this franchise back to life. So I thought it was kind of cool. I think that's a really effective opening scene to this movie. It's like, how do you open it any other way? It's true. Yeah. And then we get after... Now the podcasters on their way to Lori Strode's house. Um, they're just they get to her gate, and like he's trying to like get her attention, but like Lori's not going to open that gate for her. Just Lori's anyone. got this compound that is like really heavily guarded. Like she's not going to let anybody in there. Yeah. And the female podcasters like, how about this money? They got three thousand. They have three thousand dollars, and at first the guys like. I'm, I don't pay people for interviews. And it's like, well, you really should. Cause First like, of all, these have to be the world's worst investigative journalists in the world because 
they don't seem like they're getting very much information and they don't seem like they're really pushing to get information. It seems like they're like calling in a lot of favors to get their information, like the attorney general slipping the mask. Like obviously Sartan gave them clearance to come in because he had ulterior motives to try to get Michael to react to something. And I think the only reason Lori opened the, the gate was because she wanted the money. Oh yeah. Like, they and she doesn't even talk to him for a long no. time. No, she's like, you're asking too many personal questions. And I even wrote, I said, mind your business, boy. And when he talked about his her daughter, and I thought that was kind of like, I don't know. I thought it was inappropriate to ask about her daughter. But I guess that's like they the point. They probably could have got more out of Lori had they not mentioned her personal life like that. Like, oh, failed marriages, your because daughter. Because she's like, you knew that the answer to that question Yeah, already. and she's like... Like when she t- they talk about your 12 year old daughter, Karen was ripped from your home and all this stuff. Did you ever get custody back? And she's like, no, but you already knew that. And it's kind of like, why don't you just like stab her? You know, <laughs> like, obviously, that's a point of like hurt. Yeah. I'm like she loves her daughter. And yeah, so they she kicks them out and she's like, you guys can leave now. And the podcaster's like, we went and got we went and visited Michael. And she's like, well, what happened? He's like, nothing. He didn't speak. There was nothing there. And they tell her, they tell her that he's being transferred, but she already knows this because she's been keeping up with Michael's progress in the sanitary. Like, she's never forgotten this. She's, like, obsessed. This is a Lori... Str- what do you think? So, I asked this you is this a, the other This day. is a woman who is deeply traumatized Probably has PTSD and the only way she feels in control of herself is to keep up with it so and be always prepared for the mm-hmm. worst. And I think that's a problem a lot of traumatized people have. It's where you don't ever want to be put in that situation again. So you build up around yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I asked you this the other day and I want to get your perspective on it again. Laurie Strode here versus Laurie Strode in H2O. Both dealing with trauma. Both have similarities. But which one do you think is the better Laurie? Like, which one do you think is the better characterization of Laurie? This one or H2O? H2O because she was able to get away. She was able to have a family. H2O is the runaway Laurie versus stay and prep Laurie. Because when she ran... She was able to, like, even though her marriage failed, like, it, you know, all her marriages and, well, failed. Well, Lori says in this movie, two failed marriages that she's her, had. her marriage failed, but she was able to, like, have a son, and they had an okay relationship as compared to her relationship with her daughter, mm-hmm. where her daughter and her don't speak. Like, Lori's an alcoholic in both, but, like, she's re- a really bad alcoholic in this 2018 I think one. she's very I think she's more negatively affected by the trauma in this movie versus in H2O H2O we have Laurie Strode as having she's been running away from Michael Myers she's been hiding from Michael Myers waiting for him to come back and then she takes more of an aggressive role when he does come back this movie, we see Lori, who has been consistently preparing for the day that she would encounter Michael again. It's two different versions of Lori, both dealing with the same trauma, but in different ways. And I just one it was hoping that he doesn't come back. The and other saying, waiting. Hope, oh yeah, doesn't she say that? Her, right? Yeah. 
good. Yeah. Wanting to come back. And then we cut to meet Karen, meet um, Karen's daughter, meet Karen's husband. You get like who her daughter is, right? You just really want to talk about this line yes. that the dad oh my says. Gosh. So it's the only thing that is out of place. It's so weird. It's an out it's of place. It's such a weird line. Dad's talking to his daughter. Dad, dad has been putting in mouse traps in the yes. house. And he's been putting peanut butter instead of cheese on the mouse trap, and, and he then says, he like screws up at some point. And he says, "Peanut butter on my penis." Yeah, it's such a weird line. I never understood. And the daughter was kind of like, "What? What did you just say?" And I'm like, "Weird." Like this is the he's one. Like, no, he goes. So he hits, smacks the mouse trap on himself, and he's like, because he gets peanut butter on his thumb, and he goes, "Oh man, I got peanut butter on my." penis <laughs> like he he want like he said that as kind of like a joke when he was gonna say thumb and i don't know maybe we should take it as he was trying to be funny for his daughter i also think that maybe this was a joke that he did and it was put into the movie oh that's such a good <gasps> theory that's such a good theory i didn't even think of that that like maybe he was riffing a little bit yeah. and like going off script. maybe it was an outtake that they just they kept in there. They kept in it. Oh, I think that's more. I was trying to like analyze the dialogue <laughs> and the characters, and, and I was just, just like, thinking, "No, it was probably a mistake." I said the actor was probably just being, you know, yeah. weird. Um, um, can I talk? Can I talk about a line that the podcaster says to Lori mm-hmm. um, for a second here before we move on? Lori still refers to Michael as the boogeyman, and she's like, "Do you believe in the boogeyman?" The podcaster says, "I don't believe in the boogeyman." I believe in Michael Myers, a deranged serial killer who escaped a mental institution. And I think we really try to establish the line in this movie of Michael Myers is a guy, right? He's not supernatural. And I think they're really trying to hammer in that point in this movie. <coughs> there she goes. Sorry, um, I still have a cough. Yeah. Um. So I think they're really trying to hammer in this point let me ask your opinion on this. Yes. Because this movie really does position Michael as more human than anything else to a point where we're like, we see his face multiple times. Um, do you prefer Michael as a more human entity or a supernatural entity? I I like the supernatural bit of it because there are several parts of Michael that are unbelievable as being completely humanoid. Um. And and this movie, um, 2018's Halloween, has no mention of druids. No mention. I mean that stuff. I like you can be super a supernatural being without Stonehenge and the curse of the thorn and and Sam Sam Hain. And I'm like, you know, just be like, this is not a real like this is the boogeyman. Mm -hmm. Like if you kept it to just Michael Myers is the boogeyman. That's scary enough. Do you think it it lessens some of the impact of Michael's scariness that they've shown him as an old man in this movie? No. Yeah, I would. I've I've seen that argument before. A very scary, very strong, maybe even more scary in this movie than Um, anything else. Uh, And he's a he's a different Michael. He's a different Michael in this movie. He's a smaller Michael. But, like, he's definitely not as massive as Rob Zombie's Michael Myers, who is a freaking behemoth. 
what, before we move on, oh, I guess I can come up. I can come back to this later. We'll move on. Okay. Um, so we toe the line here between human and myth, human and supernatural. So we see Allison, Lori's granddaughter. She like asked her mom, "Hey, mom, like, did you contact grandma? Because she has like some honor society, national honor society, like thing." As a moderator for National Honor Society, <laughs> Brie, I, uh, I kind of and mom's note of that. like lying through her teeth. Yeah, I called your grandmother, and she goes. Allison goes outside to her friends. He's like, "My mom, like, lying." So she's got two friends, and her friends are like, well, "How do you know she's lying?" Because I called grandma myself, and grandma had no idea. And it's like you know, Karen has like resentment towards her mother because her mother like took away her childhood Mm -hmm. and then she was ripped from her home and you know that she probably has resentment not only for her loss of childhood but also for her mom not being well enough to take care of her karen is is definitely like she acknowledges that Lori is struggling with trauma but it seems like we're at a point where the relationship is estranged and it's because Lori took her trauma out on Karen when she was a kid. And Karen has been resentful of that. But Karen knows as an adult that Lori's got to get over that because he ain't coming back. It's been 40 years. It's the same shit that we saw in H2O where it's like, stop putting your trauma on me that John tells Lori. In. And I think... I mean, every iteration of our child is dealing with growing up with a parent who has experienced trauma, and then you now have generational trauma. Yeah. Because now you have been raised by a traumatic, like someone who experienced a traumatic event, and it impacted how they raised you. And so now you are, you have trauma. Mm -hmm. And you have to be careful to not give your trauma to your child. Yeah, and I think Karen at at this point has done a pretty good job of trying to keep that away from Allison. Unfortunately, you know, but, Michael Myers but comes has back she? because she won't let her grandmother be a part of her. Like, there's still that projection of grandma like cannot be a part of our life. I don't want grandma part of our life, and it's like we toe that line between: is it will I cause more harm than good if I don't make an effort to involve? her grandmother in her mm-hmm. life because obviously her grandmother means quite a bit to her yeah and she definitely has a closer relationship with her grandma where so so let's backtrack a second allison has two friends vicky and dave who are dating and i love dave's style oh dave's style is amazing he's wearing like uh what kind of hat is he wearing what do we call that hat like a. Uh, it's the one where like the flaps come down on the sides and it's like really square on top. I have no idea what any hats are called. Oh, it's a, it's a hat. It's a hat, <laughs> all right. It's a hat if I've ever seen one. So they they have an interesting conversation here, and it's expository, but it's also like, um, it, Dave puts things into a really interesting perspective in this conversation where he says something like like they're talking about grandma and grandma's traumatic experience and dave says well aren't they brother and sister michael and Lori?" and allison says no that's something somebody made up to make themselves feel better about whatever um so we establish very quickly halloween 2 is not canon 
and they're not brother and sister. But then Dave says, how can your grandma, like, she's got to get over this. You know, sure, she went through a traumatic experience, but, like, Michael Myers, like, some one guy killed, like, five people. That's, like, nothing compared to the stuff that happens in modern day. And I want to just put this out here, and you cannot determine the time it takes someone to get over their trauma. I don't know if I was almost murdered, if I would be able to get over that trauma. And Ever. all of Lori's friends died. Like, he killed all of her friends. Not only that, she, they killed all of her friends. They all, She came very close to dying herself. And, like, she had to protect children mm-hmm. at the same time. Like, yeah. terrifying. And... But I do think Dave is kind of right about what he says there because in the grand scheme of things, what Michael Myers did on Halloween night in 1978 is really not that, it's not that big of a crime where we've seen like actual serial killers kill dozens of people. We've seen these horrific events play out in real life with real people doing horrible and horrific things. Uh, One guy killing five people in one night is... Maybe you'd feel different. First, he's not a serial killer. He's a spree killer. Well, maybe you'd feel different if it was all your friends. I know. Yeah. So, but that's not what I'm talking. I'm just saying, like, I think that, that Dave's perspective here is like, there are so many worse things and it and it gives us an indication that this is probably not a story that the rest of the country knows about. And this is probably a very small thing that happened. Michael Myers is probably not anywhere near the amount of notoriety that he has had in previous movies. You know what I mean? And I, I think that that one line really sets the tone here for we're not dealing with something that's really well known like people aren't taking this guy seriously right now we get there he he does get taken seriously after a little while but he has to escape and kill almost quadruple the amount of people that he did in 1978 for that to happen so we have this conversation between them and I forget where we go. Where do we go from there? He blows up a, they blow up a pumpkin. Oh, and yeah, then that's a, a nice like little transition into being at school. Oh, yeah. The school scene. And this is my favorite scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have Allison sitting at, at school in a desk, almost a parallel shot to where Lori was sitting. It's the Cundy shot. When she sat and saw Michael out the window and Allison looks out the window and sees her grandmother. And it's like that parallel between the two movies that's really spectacular. And I said, what an excellent shot. It's a cool callback. And it's framed almost identical to uh, to how it was in 78. Uh, did you recognize the voice of the teacher? I didn't. Who was the teacher? Uh, the voice of the teacher is uh, PJ Souls, who plays uh, Linda in Halloween 78. Kind of cool, right? Brought it back. Brought her back. Um, Lori tell Lori and Allison meet outside the classroom, and 
Lori gives her the three thousand dollars, and Allison says, "I'm going to put it towards college." And what does Lori say? Oh, f college. Yeah. Like, do you go on a trip? Like, go to Mexico. And it's like, yes, I I can now that I'm like an adult who's gone to college. I'm like, oh yes, don't don't put anything towards college. Those loans aren't going to change. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. use that money, do something fun. I totally regret not like going on more like out of country. I've never been out of the country. Out of Cundy? Get on my face. Um, so Anthony and I are probably going to go on some out of country trips in the next coming years. Eventually. Eventually. I want to go to China or Japan. Three cool white friends in Japan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so we get these like, so Michael's being transferred. And we get these recordings. It's cool because there's a recording of Loomis that plays. And the guy who's impersonating Donald Pleasance in the scene is like spot on because it sounds exactly like Loomis. And the recording is really cool because it's uh, Loomis recommending and suggesting Michael to be terminated. I suggest death. And he's like, burn the body. And I said, I'm, I think Loomis had the right idea here. Loomis was the only one that saw the evil, but nobody listened to him because, again, this case is not nearly as big as others. I think in the Loomis country. is, and I say this all the time, Loomis is the only one who sees the big picture. Right. It's like if this man was allowed to keep going, he would have never stopped. And that's an inch. So, one of the things that this movie makes me question and. I then think about it and say, well, am am I supposed to understand Michael Myers? Like, or is that the point as to not understand Michael Myers? That he's just a force of nature. And he's a he's a killing machine. He's a machine. And I feel like Loomis knew that if if they had not gotten him, he wouldn't have more stopped. more people would have died. Oh yeah. It would have been a much grander scale. And I think like we see this as we go into this trilogy of mm-hmm. movies where you don't let him stop if you don't stop him he won't stop and and this is where i think when we get eventually that twist towards the end of the movie with sartan this is where i think this differs tremendously from the 1978 version is what do we do when we don't have loomis because that that's he's the person that's who what sto- happens yeah he's the person who stopped it yeah so Everything that happens in this movie, everything that happens in Halloween Kills is a direct result of, well, what happens when we don't have a Loomis? We don't have a, like a... The Ahab. The, yeah, we don't the have, hunter. We don't have the person who's going after him. And we still, and we'll get into the next movie in a, in a different podcast, but even then we didn't really have a successful hunter. Mm-hmm. One who understood. I guess the, the closest that you would get is Hawkins in this movie, as because Hawkins was he's introduced as the officer who was the f- direct responder, the first responder, the and one who apprehended even, Michael, and the one who stopped Loomis from killing Michael. And you can't even say Lori is a hunter because she hides. Her mm-hmm. whole thing is hide, trap, revenge, yeah. mm-hmm. and um. So Michael is transferred and Sartan gets on the bus and he's like, he's still my patient until he's in the hands of the state. Michael gets on the bus. Lori's watching from afar. And then she watches as the bus goes. She watches as the bus goes. 
And then we skip to the restaurant, the, the restaurant, the dinner after the National Honor Society induction, where uh, Allison's parents, Karen and, and Ray, are sitting at dinner with Allison and her boyfriend, Cameron, who is uh, his his last name is Elam. So Cam- Cameron Elam. And we get that relationship of, well, we now know that this very background side character from the first Halloween movie, Lonnie Elam, is his dad. And Lonnie is the character who uh, is constantly referenced in Halloween 78 by Tommy Doyle. Like, Lonnie says it's the boogeyman's house. Lonnie says this. And when on Halloween night, when um, Loomis is camping out outside the Myers house and the kids try to prank each other by to dare each other to go inside and Loomis is in the bush and he's like, Lonnie, get your ass out of there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the guy. That's who we're talking about. Um, Grandma likes the sauce. Um, and oh yeah, I di- thought you meant actual sauce no, for a second. She no. likes she downs a glass of wine. She, she downs Ray's wine. And Ray is like, <laughs> I'm gonna. I put, Ray, Ray is I, super passive. I put Dad sucks like multiple times. Ray is like. I guess he's tired of Lori's shit because he is married to Karen and Karen probably is very distressed by her mother's actions and Ray has kind of taken that position of resentful, kind of like how you are protective of me Mm -hmm. towards some people who hurt my feelings. Sure, yeah. You you hate them. Not hate. Hate is not the right word. No, you hate, like you get mad at them. Yeah. And so you're not the nicest person to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, him trying to protect Karen by being a jerk to her mom because that's what... But he really doesn't have too much interaction with Lori other than saying, like, come on, stop it. Come on, stop it. And he's very passive in as a person, it seems like. Um, Lor- so Lori's drunk and she starts crying at the dinner table and... They end up, you know, kind of after dinner, bringing her out and sending her on her way. And Karen tells Allison, um, Karen tells Allison, I'm glad you got to see that because I never told you about my childhood. And she goes into detail about like she was she put her trauma on me and she like doomsday prepped me and they took me away. Um, so that that's where that's where we get kind of that explanation too so we cut to a kid and his dad driving and they're like in the dark and they have such a funny conversation i know so the gist of this conversation this kid is just like i love you dad but they're going hunting but he's like i don't want to go hunting i love to dance i want to go to dance class dad i love spending time with you but dancing is my thing i want to go dancing it's it's close to my heart (laughs) it's such a funny conversation because like you wouldn't expect the kid to be like, "I want to dance," like you wouldn't. You typically wouldn't get that conversation. So I thought that was kind of funny. And then they notice they stop and they notice that all the prisoners are out of the bus and the bus has crashed. And the dad dad's g- like, "You stay here. I'm gonna go check it out." And the kid calls the police, and they're kind of like, "Where is your dad? Um, how are pe- everybody? How is everybody?" And he's like, "Let me go check." And I'm like, "Oh, but dad told you to stay in the car." <laughs> and he gets out and he sees the cop that was in the bus like basically dying so uh kid goes back to the car and lo and behold 
Michael is in the back of the car and strangles the kid and kills the kid. I said kills the kiddo. How sad. This is me. Is this the first time that Michael like kills a child in the franchise? I think it might be. You can argue kid Michael killed Junie in Halloween, but in like the Rob Zombie movie. But I don't. I, I don't count it. This kid it's not was this, young, man. Yeah, he was very young. This is a maybe a twelve-year-old boy, and Michael strangles him and kills him. So this is probably the first time Michael kills a kid. Kids are not off limits to this version of Michael Myers. But babies are. We'll get into but, it. But babies are. But also, like the the decision to kill this kid is weird because in '78. Tommy Doyle runs into or some one kid runs into Michael Myers and Michael grabs him and lets him go. In this movie, when Michael gets to Haddonfield, kid runs into him. Michael lets him go and he proceeds on his way. I think there is no rhyme or reason. It's it's so tough because you want to understand. There's no Michael. rhyme or reason. I think he wanted the car. The kid was in the car. I forgot Michael drives in this movie. He took the car. He killed the kid. He took the car. He killed the kid. And he and we finally see him gassing up. What? We finally see him Oh, gas- yeah. Didn't we mention this? Yes, we, we mentioned this on the first episode of the podcast when he talked Halloween 78 that, like, Michael has to stop for gas. And we finally see him gas stop up gas, the car. Stop for gas, right? He so, stopped for gas. Um, we're introduced to Officer Hawkins, who responds to the call at the the bus and we know hawkins is the first responder from 78 and uh he has to answer to the sheriff who is this dude in a cowboy hat and he gets like very little screen time but he's this like larger than life character and it's just such a strange decision in this uh in this movie that you would have such a big character like that and they don't do anything with him in this movie he like barely shows up so i was like He's got to be in the sequel, right? Like, he's got to have a bigger part in the sequel. Like, when I first saw the movie, I said, this guy's got to have a bigger part if they make a new movie because otherwise you just introduced this, like, interesting character and did absolutely nothing with him. Uh, the guy says, the, the sheriff says, well, first of all, my question is, why are you wearing a cowboy hat in Illinois? Um, there um, are plenty of people in Illinois who wear cowboy hats. Really? You think? I got a cowboy hat. Now I'm in three cowboy hats. <laughs> I'm glad you knew what I was talking about. <laughs> um, so, so I think that this is a weird choice to have this character in here. I think that's this character is maybe one of the things that I would change about this movie. Also, Cameron's decision making later in the movie, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Um. Cowboy Hat Sheriff says, what are, you, what are we going to do? Cancel Halloween? And I said, exactly. That's exactly what you do. You, you cancel Halloween. I think that was a callback to Halloween 6 when they actually do cancel Halloween in Haddonsfield. Um, so Michael drives and he gets to the gas station and it, the podcasters are also at and the gas station. And he sees them. He's been, I, he clocks I think he's right, been following them. He clocks them right away. Well, he clocks some people outside in the gas station right away. And we see that it's a cool shot where we see one of the podcasters in the convenience store and through the window, we see Michael like beating the fuck out of whoever is outside. It's not the male podcaster because he gets his later, but it's somebody outside. Um, 
she go the female podcaster goes to the bathroom um she said where's the loo and he's I, like what and she like someone comes in and it's michael obviously and he's like peeking through like the cracks in the door and this is where i'm telling you people, in a similar sequence to h2o in that I, one i'm gonna tell you people who are listening from outside america in america in america the toilets in the restroom have cracks between the doors and so people can like look at you while you're on the toilet everywhere other countries the the toilets go from top to bottom there is no openings i wish america was like other countries you know i've only been to one bathroom in the united states that has no gaps at all and it was that fancy mall the fashion outlets of chicago that i worked at but i think it's because it was a high traffic foreign mall where, oh sure yeah where right, by the, right by the airport so a lot of people from different countries went there and they would be so uncomfortable if there were gaps mm-hmm. the doors went all the way to the ground and they closed and there's no gaps and i think all bathrooms should be that way i agree i don't when you, want with brie when you're president you can make it happen I'm first like, order business first of all i am a woman and I don't want anyone looking at me while I'm on the the peeper. Listen, this podcaster is on the toilet for a long time. And I'm like, she's taking a poop. She's got to be taking a poop. What, and we've constantly referenced in not only this movie series, but Fast and the Furious and Jurassic Park. When do these people take poops? She had to be taking a poop because she, she was on that for a very long time. Or she was so scared. But you don't even hear the trickle, trickle of pee. So she had to be pooping. So um, Mike, so Michael's outside and he starts banging on the stall door. And he puts his hand over and he drops bloody teeth in front of the female podcaster. And this brings up um, kind of an, a debate, I guess. That when I remember when I saw the trailer for this movie in 2018, and that scene is in the trailer where he drops the teeth, and somebody on Reddit said, I don't think this is a good characterization of Michael Myers because Michael doesn't torment his yes, victims. He does. I was just about to ask you, do you think Michael torments yes, his victims? Yes, he does. Victim? He poses bodies. He's an artist. He's, he like He does stuff to have people discover the bodies and be terrified. This is this is a man who thinks about terrifying other people. He yes, he's very I think he's very aware of what he's doing. I think he's intentionally trying to terrify people. When we think about Michael Myers and we say, well, there's no rhyme or reason for what he does and how he chooses his victims and why he does what he does. It, this is where it becomes interesting because like he's got to be aware of what he's doing. Because he's actively trying to torment them. And you can even see that in 78 when he poses Annie's body similarly to with the Judith Myers headstone. Or he shoves uh, uh, Linda in the closet. Or he admires Bob and tilts his head when he kills Bob. Like, Michael is very aware of how he positions these bodies and how he fucks with his victims. And I think this movie brings that to another level by like dropping the teeth. And then there's another thing that he does later on with, with Vicky where he puts the sheet over her like a ghost. Um, We see that in the next movie in a lot of different ways too, of Michael, like making art out of the dead bodies essentially. And Michael, he, he murks this woman 
And well, he murks the guy too. And the and the and the guy. And he's unmasked in this scene, and we we definitely like do get to see his face pretty clearly in some shots. And then once he kills them, he goes and takes the mask out of their car. He takes the mask, and I love this little sequence where he kind for for the only time in this movie that he shows some sort of like emotion, he like rubs the mask and like kind of admires it for a second where he's like, mm, we back, like we, we, back, we back, we back to this man. And you know that Laurie Strode is very aware that Michael got out. Can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. What do you think about the mask in this movie? I think it is so well done. Yeah. It's well yeah. done. I'm, we've always complained about the mask. The only mask that I appreciate are the original mask and then the mask in this movie. It's, the attention to detail of this mask is really, really intriguing to me because, sorry, it was burping. Um, Gross. The attention to detail is really intriguing because I was reading up on some of the things that the production designers and the mask maker was saying in which they wanted the mask to seem aged. So they wanted it, they, they studied what the original mask would have looked like if it had been aged 40 years and they based it off of that. And I think that attention to detail is really, really, really important because Rob Zombie tried to do an aged mask. And for whatever reason, the mask had like stitches on it. It was like, that's not how masks age, right? Like it would be a little bit more sunken, a little bit more gray. And that's what we get in this movie with this mask. Where would, when we're all done, when a Halloween franchise is said and done, we're going to rank all the masks. We're going we're gonna to do a ranking system of all the masks. Which one do you think is the worst so far? Um, the CGI uh, yes, mask? Yes, I was going to say the CGI one. It's so bad. Terrifying. It's so bad. Um, so Michael has assembled the costume. He's got his mechanics outfit. He's got his mask. He is ready to go to Haddonfield. And, and so- then we, we cut to Lori, an absolute maniac, breaks into karen's house and karen like knows something's up like her door is ajar then her husband comes in and she thinks oh it was just my husband's home but then Lori comes she's like you'd be dead boom you're dead (laughs) gotcha gotcha uh Lori is on the hunt she knows the bus has crashed and um we're introduced to hawkins and uh all that we're introduced all these little like side characters that are in the movie too so um then we get Michael in Haddonfield, and which he... is probably the most interesting scene in this entire movie, I think, because it's the one scene where we really get like a look into what would have happened if they didn't catch him. Yeah, basically, because he goes from house to house, just killing people. And I, I think the scene is so intriguing to me because we get a glimpse into his decision making like. It's, how he decides where he wants to go. It's whoever leaves their door open. It's whoever leaves their door open. But like he bumps into the kids, but he doesn't do anything with the kids. Yet he turns his head and he sees a garage door open and he goes in the garage door. He picks up the hammer. And then the way that this guy walks to, I got to love the actor that plays Michael in this movie because the way he walks is just so like menacing. It's just a very stiff, like, I'm going to keep my head up and I'm going to just walk forward. And it's it's the same way that any crazy person would 
would walk, right? Like any deranged psychopath that doesn't have a conscious or is animalistic would would walk. So he breaks into this lady's house. He hits her with a hammer. He walks past the baby, right? And leaves the baby alone. And I remember when we were in the theater seeing it for the People first time. People were like, oh, not the baby. Yeah, he walked by the baby and everyone, oh, no. Like, like the theater was like, oh, my God. And then he walked past the baby. So, like, we get this decision making of Michael, like, is the baby worth it? No. Why isn't the baby worth can't it? Can't fight back. Can't fight back. That That's exactly what I thought, too. Why are the kids not worth it? Kids can't fight back. Why did Michael kill that one kid in the car? He wanted the car. Got in his way. So... Then you get like Michael, he sees the this couple in a doctor and nurse costume leaving and he just kind of stares at them. But then he turns his head and he sees another door open. And he goes in there. And he goes in there and he kills the lady that's in there. So it's a really cool glimpse into how Michael makes his decisions as to where he wants to go. And this guy's freaking walking through the front door. He's like, Front door, back door, whatever. He's like, I don't give a shit. You can watch me kill these people. Like, I don't care. And that's why every door in our house is locked at all times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ain't nobody walking in here. Um, It's such an interesting scene. Because I I wrote down, I'm like, how does he choose who who to kill? It's like, this is an absolute... This is anarchy, the way that he makes his decisions and how he's just in, in real time in two minutes going from house to house to house and like easily killing these people for no reason. Um, we get this like notion from Sartan who's found and um, he gets, you know, taken to the hospital and then he gets brought along to hunt Michael. And he says some stuff about like, Michael is a predator. Like what, what keeps him going? Is it the pursuit of Laurie Strode as the prey and then we get this like theme throughout the movie of who's predator and who's prey. Is Laurie the predator or is Michael the predator? Also, I feel like everyone's very misguided in the fact that I don't think Michael gives a flying toot about Laurie Strode. We establish that very quickly in this movie. He doesn't give a toot. It's circumstantial the way that they come together. Like he wasn't actively pursuing Laurie. He only pursued her after he was brought to he her. He was brought to her. And I don't think he even remembered her, it, honestly. But that's something we can get into in a minute. Um, we get Vicky babysitting the kid, Julian. Oh, the kid is so funny. Oh, uh, the kid's amazing. Steals the show in this movie. He does. Um, he's. It's, it's, I said I love this kid. He said, uh, if you were being a real babysitter, I wouldn't be sitting here clipping my nasty-ass toenails. <laughs> he's like, you could be reading me a book. <laughs> And he's like, I know you mean smoke weed. Yeah, he's like, I know weed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th- I thought that was definitely Danny McBride writing this kid and writing these characters. Um, and so she calls him like a loser kid. She's like, You're, or no, she says, uh, like I, thought, I, th- I thought you were I thought you were cool, but not like any of these other loser fucking kids that I babysit. <laughs> And I was just like, this is this is nice. And Danny McBride has said before in interviews talking about writing this movie that he's written a bunch of different things and he's killed characters before and what some other stuff that he's written. But it's always characters who have like done something wrong. So he's like, the challenge here is writing 
is killing characters who haven't done anything wrong that don't deserve it. And I think of that with like Vicky because we like her. We like her. We don't want her to die. No, and she's so different from Okay, so if we're going to parallel back to the original, it's like her two friends, we didn't want them to die. Lori's two friends, we didn't want them to die either. But they were like more promiscuous women. Annie was kind of a jerk. Like you know? a jerk. They were just hooking up. They weren't really taking care of the kids. Like she's taking care of we this kid. We get this like heartwarming she loves thing this where kid. she's like, she cares you know, about you're my him. favorite kid that I babysit when she talks And so him. like when she dies, you're like, oh my gosh. Like, oh. I know. It's, it's rough. But that death scene is interesting because Dave comes by and they're like, let's do it. But he's like, I'm going to get high. I'm going to go bother this motorcycle. So she goes and uh, tucks the kid in. And he, the kid gets all upset. He's like, the boogeyman. I saw the boogeyman. Like, he's in there. And uh, she goes and investigates that. And she doesn't find anything. And then... Oh god. Like it's as she's going around, he's like, Can you close the closet door? Mm-hmm. And she can't close the closet. Yeah, she can't close the closet. So he opens it up and Michael's standing right there and slashes her. The kid And he's like, Oh dips hell out. no. Like kid, Oh hell no. And he just runs away and Dave is in there and he's like, Well, f- well first he, he goes first back. First he up. says send Dave. Send send Dave first to go up there. But when he is running, he comes back up and she's like, no. Yeah. Run. Run. And I think I'm getting emotional. I don't know why. It's because I really love kids, I guess. I'm like, that's someone who deeply cares about the child. Mm -hmm. You know, like. And she she has to know. I I think she would have gotten away, too, if she hadn't like slipped and fell. And I feel like so terrible for her because I was like, in that moment, she knew she was probably going to die. And mm-hmm. she was just like, you need to go. Yeah. Not only to get away, but not to see this happen. Yeah. And so the kid runs and Dave is standing there. He's like, Dave, don't go, don't go up there. You're going to die. But good on Dave for. He's like, I care about yeah, my girlfriend. Yeah, and he runs up to protect her, but then we find out later he, di- he dies. He dies, and he gets uh, impaled into the wall. Um. So then we get like the scene in the school dance. The school's having a Halloween. Yeah, dance. Allison and her boyfriend they went as Bonnie and Clyde, but like gender reversed, and she's like she needs to take a phone call when they're mm-hmm. at the dance. And he's like, oh, really? And she's like, oh, I'll be quick. She well, goes, there, Cameron's drinking. Yeah, he's drinking. And she's not because, you know, it's a school night. Um, and she comes back after taking this phone call where she's like, oh, yeah. She was on the phone with her friend and like, oh, we'll come over after the dance is done. And she comes back to see him kissing somebody else. T- Tiger girl. Yeah. And you know what? I at think that, that is mo- such a dumb. At that moment, I, I was like, "This is get. my least favorite character in this entire well, movie. I can't wait till he dies." And, and this is what I don't get. And I think this is something that I would change about this movie too: is Cameron's characterization because he he's introduced as kind of like a good guy. He's with Allison at the like meeting the parents, and he gets along with Dad, and he's you know charming. And then he kisses this girl and it's like in broad daylight, like out in the open like that. What a dumb decision. 
and then he throws her phone in well then pudding. He, he gaslights her yeah well we, he's like we were just talking really close and he she's has like, the most teenage boy explanation about this and getting caught i wrote down what he said he said i don't know what you think you saw she was just like talking to me and i said that's the most teenage boy explanation i was like for well that's caught. gaslighting yeah i you didn't you didn't that's not what you saw you must be seeing things you see what you want to see and like it's like no like you kissed her so she gets a phone call and he throws her phone in pudding i think it's pudding it's something some gooey stuff and at that point i would have taken my phone i wouldn't have left it it was still working yeah like phones don't get destroyed that easily you can just clean it off but <clears throat> that's that's the end of him in this movie he doesn't show up again um her his friend follows her out Mm -hmm. but i think i would have changed cameron's characterization there is a deleted scene in which he like sincerely apologizes to allison and like kind of redeems himself a little bit um that's not in the movie there's also a deleted scene in the movie where michael goes back to the myers house but it's like torn to the ground and I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad do they didn't that. do that because what we get in kills is, is so far is superior, so great. Um, so, uh, Cam uh, Cameron is like bleh, and then the friend Oscar walks, tries to walk Allison home. Yeah, he tries to kiss her. He makes a move on her, and she's like, "Uh, uh-uh. uh," and he kind of like, "I never get." anything i want mm-hmm. nice guys finish last yeah meanwhile uh karen and laurie and are frantically calling frantically trying to get in touch with allison yeah and i think Cam- the whole thing with cameron in this movie was just like a plot device to get her to leave the dance well to get her to get away from her phone to get her to not have a phone not have a phone and be headed out yeah yeah because like this movie wouldn't have happened if they if Allison had her phone and just got in touch with Lori. Mm-hmm. Like this whole movie wouldn't have happened. So Cameron's whole characterization in this movie is just a plot device to get her away from her phone, Fair. which I disagree with, and I don't like that they did that. Um, he tries to kiss her, and she kind of ditches him, and then Mister Elrod. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, sorry, Mister Elrod. You know, have you ever? He tell he, Michael's in the shadows, standing. And he's in like the back. telling him like all he this. He thinks he think the kid thinks he's uh by like the groundskeeper, and he's like, so I'm not trying to trespass or anything. He's like, have you ever have you ever had a situation in which you tried to chase a girl and she got away from you <laughs> or something? And Michael's like, hell yeah, I have. And <laughs> then speak, speak to me. Um. Then you get this like. Playing with the lights it's thing. Such it, that's this is my terrifying. Favorite. This is the, my favorite. The lights scene. go off and then they flicker on and off and the motion detector. Yeah. So my, we don't ever see Michael move, but every time the lights go on, he's in a different spot and he's closer. And all of a sudden, he's in Oscar's face and slashing him. And he and Oscar's kind of just like, what the hell? What the? And he's screaming, "Help! Help!" And she, Allison's like, "Whatever." She goes back and then she finds him impaled on a stake and. Face to face with Michael Myers, she knows and th- exactly. This is where that cool music comes in. The well, she knows exactly who it is. Oh yeah, which is weird. Do you think that they would have known that it's Michael Myers had he not had the same exact mask? No. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that was like a, a what a, what a random happy circumstance that he had the same mask because now they recognize that as Michael Myers when this could have just been some other dude. Um, but she definitely recognizes it. So we're to assume that like the entire Strode family like 
has seen pictures. So like it's it's generational trauma, mm-hmm. but it keeps her alive. Yeah, because she runs the hell away. <laughs> yes. And we get that really cool score. The shape hunts Allison. Boom. And she runs away. And meanwhile, I think this is before. I think we skipped ahead. But oh, I've stopped writing at this we, point. We skipped ahead because <laughs> Officer Hawkins and Lori show up at the baby Vicky, the kid's house that she was babysitting for. And, and they Lo- kind of run into and each Lo- other. And Lori s- sees Michael through the window and Michael kind of turns his head to acknowledge Lori. And that's the only scene in the movie that original Michael Myers actor Nick Castle plays michael myers oh how awesome for yeah him. that's the that's the only scene in the movie um but then they they encounter michael hawkins sees michael walk through the house and he's a freaking stormtrooper because michael's literally just walking in a straight line and hawkins can't shoot him and misses whereas laurie sees him walk at a far distance and shoots him in the shoulder so but she's been practicing yeah she's a good shot um so Allison's running away from Michael and she runs to a house and screams for help and she gets her help. Meanwhile, Hawkins and Sartan um, are searching for Michael and they see him and they pick up. Well, first they pick up Allison in the police car. Well, uh, you might have heard Bree's voicemail. Right oh, there. yeah. I thought I was just listening. I turned down my volume all the way. Um, so they pick up Allison in the police car and... Um, they then see Michael and they just run him the hell. Yeah, over. they run him over <laughs> like at so, and then the which guy, is probably the smartest. Yeah, but then the guy the, the the guy gets out and he's like, he's dead. He's you've, my patient. You've killed him, Doctor Satan. And then he uh he gets out to like shoot him to make sure. Yeah, because Hawkins is like, I'm not. I'm, I'm fixing not my mistake. Any, yeah, I'm not from taking any time. chances here. And the guy the. the face turn the <laughs> the guy stabs him officer hoggins in the neck heel turn heel turn yeah um, heel turn sorry not face on, get, turns you, get the your other baby way. face and heels together brie um so he kills hawkins we know you know spoiler for the next movie hawkins isn't dead so he didn't make it on my list of the kill count um at this point how many people have he killed at this point oh i don't know at this point i, lo- I lost track he 19 total for the movie Jeez. it's 19 total um so sartan reveals like his whole thing was i I, it's implied that he caused the bus crash and he's the one who let michael loose so michael is unconscious he drags michael puts him in the back seat with allison and starts driving away and he says like i want the reunion i think michael will speak i think he will react if he's reunited with laurie so they start driving to Lori's house and Allison starts trying to, you know. He talked to me. He's, if he's, if you he let, spoke to me. If you let me out, I'll, I'll tell you what he said. And and meanwhile, Michael is waking up at this and point. And the first thing Michael does when he wakes up is not go after Allison. He kicks the crap out of Sartan. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> F this guy. Like, let me out of here. Yeah. So um, this is one of the cooler deaths, I guess, is. He drags Sartan out and curb stomps him. He's like, Michael, say something. And Michael looks at him and just curb bashes his head in. And we um, get and, it, and then Allison up. runs away. Yeah, it picks up. She she gets to the woods. Um, Michael then dry drives 
like, no, the po- other police go to the cruiser and Michael murks them. Michael murks them. Uh, one of the police officers is played by the guy who designed the mask for this movie. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Michael drives the police vehicle to Lori's, Lori's house, house where Lori and her entire family are, are except Allison, except Allison. Allison's running in the woods and but Lori reveals like some features of her house to try to keep her family safe where she reveals this like island that's in the middle of her kitchen can move and there's a basement that's like an armory almost. There's like a bunch of weapons in there. It's like a bomb shelter. It's got food and it's got Karen's gun in there from when she was a kid. Uh, so they all go down there and they're just kind of waiting. And Lori says, fuck this. And she picks up a gun and she goes upstairs. She shuts the thing and keeps uh, Karen down there while she stands by the door because she feels like Michael's coming. Meanwhile, those two police officers, they get murdered. And then they, he pulls up to the house and Karen's husband, the idiot he, he is. He was playing with a yo-yo. The idiot he is goes outside. <laughs> goes outside. To ask if he, like they've heard anything. And he goes up to the police car and we see one of the officers dead and the other one is beheaded. And, and his is, head is like a, carved out. Yeah, like it's a, a jack-o'-lantern. And I was like, when did Michael have the time to do artist, this? An artist, he, I swear. I, that guy had to have taken like a tremendous amount of time. And Michael had like 15 minutes. Max. 15 minutes. And so dad dies. Yeah, dad's dead. He gets strangled by Michael. Does he get stabbed? I'm not I think he just gets strangled. He might just get strangled. Um, And then Lori knows Michael's outside. So she pops up the lights, like the big overhead lights on the house. And she stands by the door with a shotgun. And Michael breaks through the windows and grabs her and like smacks her head against the door. She blows off his fingers. And then she, yeah, she, uh, he grabs the like tip of the gun and she pulls the trigger and blows off three of his fingers. And that's how she gets away. And that's how she gets away. But it doesn't affect Michael any because they are... Lori goes to the underground area with Karen. Michael is in the house. And he's like looking around. And he's very like methodical. And he's looking around. And then he just disappears. So Lori gets, says, I'm ending this. And she gets out of the basement with the shotgun and starts going room to room to start looking for Michael. And it's like, she thinks Michael's in the closet. Michael's not in the closet. And this is where we talked about this in the movie where like this movie, and we've spoken about this in terms of like other horror movies before that you can use emptiness to feel full and and create suspense. Yeah. You can use emptiness. Like the, we talked about the invisible man, the new invisible man movie and how like they just had a camera on an empty chair and it was intense because there's that notion that he could be there. And I think in this, anywhere there was empty, dark space, he could be there. He could be there. Yeah. And that's that's scary. So Lori goes up to her bedroom and she sees all of like her training dummies from outside, like uh, shooting dummies where she would practice shooting, all in her bedroom, like put there as a way to get Michael to blend in a little bit. And I was like, Michael put that there. Like, when did he have time to do this, to plant all of this stuff? But it ends up working and he kind of sneaks up on her and uh, 
she falls off a balcony. And then we have our <laughs> another parallel. Michael goes to check on her and she's gone. Yes. Um, to which Michael then goes downstairs and Allison has come in and is now underground with her mom. And Michael is looking around and he's trying to figure out where everyone could be. And then he figures it out somehow that if you like the entrance to the underground area is through the that island in the middle of the kitchen. So he breaks open the island. And I was like, how did he figure that out? I don't know how he could have how anybody could have known. I don't know. He's smart cookie, I guess. He's a smart guy, that Michael Myers. So Karen's got the gun. She's got her little like hunting rifle that she had. And Allison is behind her and the thing opens up and they know Michael's right there. And she, Karen's like, I don't, she's crying. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I could do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And when it it lures Michael in and when he finally shows up, she goes, gotcha. And just snipes him. Which, I mean. Is a really cool moment. And if I'm Karen, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad my mom spent the first 12 years of my life preparing me how to kill michael myers yeah so it's a really cool moment because she shoots him and it knocks him back and then laurie comes out of the shadows and says happy halloween michael stabs the fuck out of him and it basically like pushes him underground and uh like through the stairs like tumbling down the stairs and then they 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 all run up they click like this thing where it like seals off the entrance when they get michael down there because it takes all three strode women to get Michael down there. It takes Al- it takes uh, Karen to shoot him, Lori to push him down and stab him, and then he's about to come up, and Allison takes the knife and stabs him again. And then they pull a lever, and these uh, metal bars shoot through the entrance to the underground area and trap Michael in there. And then you have like these gas things filling up the basement and the entire house the entire house and like laurie throws a flare so everything starts to engulf in flames and i think this is one of the scariest shots in the movie is michael just standing there and knowing that he's been beaten and knowing that he can't do anything but not even reacting to it not like no trying to get out, not trying to break through, but just standing there and watching them. I think that is so terrifying. And then you get like the Strode women driving away. As the house in- is engulfed yeah. in flames. But then as they're driving away. We- the camera zooms in on Allison holding the knife and the movie ends. So good. So good. So good. Uh, Very good movie. The original ending to this movie um, was screen tested in front of a test audience and was changed because it tested poorly. The original ending of this movie was going to be Karen outside shoot that shoots Michael with a crossbow and Michael leans against a tree and sits down and then that's it. And the, the Strode women get away. No, this was more. This was a be- much better. This was ending. a much better ending. Yeah. Yeah. This was a much better ending. Um, so, I mean, I can't. I think I've said as many positive things about this movie as humanly possible. I love it. I think this is how you make a sequel, uh, where you can draw new audiences in, but still, us that are super big fans of the original and love this legacy where it means a tremendous amount to us, we're still really, really satisfied 
by the direction of this movie. So I must ask you, Anthony, I know you've been waiting for me. Oh, yeah. Does this make your list for the top 100 movies? Oh, yes. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Um, If I had to choose one Halloween sequel to put on this list, I would put this one on the list. Just as you put Jurassic World last week on on the list, I'm putting this requel. I would put this one on the list. Oh, too. you're gonna put it too? Yeah, it's re- it's really well it's done. Really good. I don't know if I would put the next one on the uh, list. Yeah, that's a conversation we'll have next. I mean, week, but, but this one is definitely like it's it makes it it's really good, really well crafted, really well done, and I'm glad and we got it, to review it. And it just is such a love letter to John Carpenter and to the legacy of the original movie. If they had just stopped at this one, it would have been fine. It would have been great. However. I do like that they moved on because this is a world that I still want to explore, you know, that you introduce some stuff. And when you have Jamie Lee Curtis, you're going to use Jamie Lee Curtis. Except in the next movie when they really don't use Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, but, she, but we get enough of her. Yeah. She's such a mag- magical person. She, magical. Just yeah. magical. Just magical. So we both have this movie on our list. Um, and I think that's that's just about all to say because we're probably going to talk more about it next week when we get into kills because you have to compare these two together um and we've been going real long on this one i know i I know you're probably like anthony breathe yeah we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up so we'll wrap it up okay we'll wrap this up it's both on our list of uh one of our top 100 movies we will be back next week uh probably to continue discussion on this movie but also start discussion on our sequel to the sequel, Halloween Kills, uh, 2021's Halloween Kills. Um, follow us on social media. Instagram. You can follow us at review underscore pod. Uh, you can follow my, Anthony on Twitter. My Twitter uh, at GLDTV1. Brie, where can we find you? You have to fart into a toilet. That's the only way I will answer. Uh, any toilet? It has to be one specific toilet. Uh, how big of a fart? It has, to be a, it has to be a fart that can tell me exactly what you think. Okay. So a fart from the heart. Yeah, a fart from the heart. <laughs> okay. I only respond to farts, and it only has to be at one particular toilet, but I won't tell you what toilet it is. You'll just have to find You'll it. You'll just have to find it. Like and that's the, the only piece. way you can get a hold of me. It's the one piece. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, you can also email us at reviewpodcast1 at gmail.com. And uh, I think that's it. We'll be back next week. You can find us anywhere that you find your podcast: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We'll all be back. Those things. All those things. We'll be back next week with Halloween Kills. Thanks for coming, and we will see you next week. The review podcast. Yeah.